Heavenly Father, you are wonderful. You are majestic. You are glorious. You are transcendent. You are beyond us. And yet in your infinite kindness and goodness, you have given us words and images to help us understand how profound your love for us is, how wonderful your salvation is. Lord, even if we just scratch the surface this morning, it would be enough food for thought to spend the rest of eternity contemplating. May your spirit help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think some of the best things in life are those things that are both familiar and surprising. Familiar, that means they're reassuring, doesn't it? We feel safe around them, comfortable, but surprising as well. It keeps our interest. Children, they are familiar and surprising, those who've had children. As they grow up, you get to know their quirks and their personalities, what makes them laugh and what makes them sad. They are familiar, but they are also wonderfully surprising. I'll give you a few examples. Elijah and Eliza, I don't know why, they'd been watching some Pride and Prejudice. And so Elijah then had this kind of regular thing where he would say to Eliza, let us get up and take a turn around the room. If you've seen Pride and Prejudice, you know what I'm referring to. Very surprising. Or Eliza. Sometimes I walk into breakfast and she'll say to me in a very grand voice and bowing, good day, Johnny. And what a fine day it is, sir. She calls me Johnny. I have no idea why she calls me Johnny, but she does. Doesn't call me sir very often, but there we go. A favorite story or film, one you love going back to. You, you, you know it so well, you've read it, you've watched it hundreds of times, and yet there is still something about it that you've not seen before, some connection. The best kind of friendships, they're familiar and they're surprising, aren't they? And that which is most wonderful, most brilliant, most precious and glorious, the Christian gospel, the cross, Jesus Christ, is familiar and surprising. There's a, a poem, old poem, written by Catherine Hankey in the 19th century. They turned it into a hymn. I used to sing it at a previous church. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story slowly, that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. The gospel, the cross, Jesus Christ. It is an old, old story, isn't it? It is familiar to many of us, told for generations. And yet it is so rich so out of this world that it continues to surprise and shock the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And this morning we're going to hear that story again. Now in Isaiah, this story of the cross, as we understand it to be, living uh, thousands of years forward from when Isaiah wrote these words, this story of the cross in the context of Isaiah, it comes at a turning point. The Lord has been promising his people salvation and rescue and an end to judgment. But behind all of these promises, there is a question, how? How can the Lord of justice both punish the sins of his people and save them from their sins? 
How can the Lord of justice both conquer his enemies and offer salvation and forgiveness to them through his saviour servant? We're going to think about some aspects of Isaiah 53 this morning, but not all of it, I'm afraid. The first thing we want us to see is our surprising saviour. 53 verses 1 to 3. Actually, we're going to start 52 verse 13. Isaiah says, uh, or the Lord says, See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Again, we're introduced to the Lord's servant. We've come across the Lord's servant a few times in these chapters. The one who will bring salvation and life to God's people. And so far, so good. All of this sounds appropriate. He'll be wise and exalted. But then comes the surprise, verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. There is something strange, isn't there, about this? Something unexpected about the servant of the Lord. People are appalled by him. And the surprise continues. 53 verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, And like a root out of dry ground. The servant of the Lord God's saviour. He doesn't arrive with power and presence. He, He arrives with a whimper. Barely alive. A tender shoot in dry ground. Nothing really to sustain it. Struggling to survive. And there's more. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Be drawn towards him. There's nothing kingly or majestic about God's deliverer. There is nothing in his appearance that might make us think, this one, this guy, he is the one to watch. He's going to do something special. Keep your eye on him. There's no grandness. There's no obvious glory. See, everything we normally look for in a great person, in a leader or a winner, they're kind of the perfect features a captivating presence, well-connected and popular. God's saviour has none of it. And so instead of being embraced, the Lord's servant is rejected. 53 verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. Don't you find this strange and and, and, and odd. Here at last is the saviour of the world. Here at last is God's servant who will put an end to exile and despair and restore God's people back into relationship with him. And what does he look like when he comes? Weak and unimpressive. Someone to be appalled at. To be avoided and ignored. In the story of Isaiah, Israel, she's on her knees at this moment. The people of God, they're on their knees at the moment, desperate for help. But this in the bigger story of the whole world. We, the world, is on its knees, desperate for help. And what does the Lord do? He sends a sapling that is barely alive as the rescuer. No wonder the writer says, 53 verse 1, who has believed our message? 
Now I know for those of us who've been Christians for many years, perhaps this isn't so surprising anymore. We're familiar with the story of Jesus, but do you ever stop and think, why? Why does the Lord have to do it this way? Why not send Jesus as a mighty king surrounded by a troop of angels? Why not make him stand out taller, stronger, mighty? Why weak? Why unimpressive? Why despised? I think there's lots of things you could say, but here's one. Because the way the Lord will defeat sin and evil and Satan is by being the opposite of sin and evil and Satan. Think about the heart of sin. Think about the heart of Satan. It is pride. So salvation must be humble. Satan and sin revel in in self-exaltation. So salvation must be self-effacing. People hide their faces from him. Sin and Satan get what they want through manipulation and aggression. They grasp and they snatch and they take. Salvation must come through self-sacrifice and self-offering and self-giving. The Lord defeats sin and evil by being the opposite to sin and evil. Of course it's got to be that way. Let me show you something. In Isaiah 51 verse 9, if you've got a Bible, you can flick back. Isaiah 51 verse 9, the people say to the Lord, why don't you pierce the dragon like you did in days of old? Kind of complaining, Lord, you're not helping. Why don't you pierce the dragon like you did in days of old? Well, the the dragon, symbolically, it represents evil. It's it's probably an allusion to the serpent in Genesis 3 to Satan himself, Lord, pierce the dragon, destroy Satan. And that word pierce is rare. It only occurs seven times in the whole Bible. Next time it occurs is in Isaiah 53. The servant was pierced for our transgressions. You see, the Lord will pierce and destroy and defeat Satan, the dragon, the serpent. But how does he do it? Not the way that the serpent would have done it. He will do it by piercing his own son. It is the opposite of evil and sin. In order to win, evil and sin would manipulate and destroy and trample down all that is before them. In order to win, the Son of God does the opposite. He sacrifices himself. He is pierced for our transgressions. Our saviour grew up like a tender shoot and like a root in dry ground, unimpressive because our saviour is the opposite to sin. Our saviour had no beauty or majesty, no self-exaltation because he is the opposite to Satan. Our saviour became disfigured and marred beyond human likeness because he is the opposite to evil. Humble, self-effacing, self-giving. He is a surprising saviour. Strikingly, the French emperor, Napoleon, saw something of this. He said some incredible words about Jesus, so incredible actually that I didn't think they were true until I did a little bit of research, uh, Wikipedia and all that kind of stuff, so it's quality research. But it seems apparent that he did actually say these words. I haven't got them on the screen, so you're going to have to listen. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. 
Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He lists some great leaders, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and, and I, talking about himself, he's a great leader, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. The world, Satan, evil, will use force to bring about their agenda. Jesus uses love. He is the opposite of pride and sin and Satan. And that makes him surprising to us. Perhaps surprising because those things have so infected our heart that when we see it in someone else, it is surprising. We wouldn't have done it that way. Jesus is the surprising savior. Who has believed us, says Isaiah. He is the surprising savior, the opposite to sin and Satan and evil. Secondly, he is the perfect savior. 53, four to six. Now in these verses that we're just about to look at, what is described here is the very heart of the Christian story. It's the heart of the human story. It shows us God saving the world and it shows us the perfect saviour accomplishing that salvation. We're going to see three things, maybe four, we'll see how time goes. And we'll see that Jesus takes away all of our suffering and all of our sin and all of our judgment as he dies on the cross. So 53 verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Jesus takes away all our suffering. In Isaiah 53, salvation, it starts, if you like, on the outside. It starts with our bodies. He takes up our pain and our suffering. And it's not just that he shares in our pain and our suffering. That would be amazing enough. It is that the God of all the earth steps into our world, shares our pain and our suffering. No, verse 4, it's more wonderful than that. He took up our pain and our suffering. He, he lifts it off of us. Our heartache, our physical and mental torment, he lifts it off of us. I think it's a picture of Jesus removing the curse of God from, our, from us. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that our sorrows and our sufferings, our pain and our suffering is because we live in a world under the curse of God. Genesis 3, all of humanity lives under that curse. And on the cross, Jesus reaches down and he lifts the curse off our backs. When, we, when our kids were a bit younger, if we we're going to go on a walk, they'd love to take a little rucksack with them. Not only that, they'd love to fill it with the most useless stuff you could imagine for, for, for any walk, teddy bears, books, whatever they could find in their room. And the inevitable happens about 10 minutes into the walk, that the bag is too heavy. And so, Dad, I'm tired, so I would have to reach down and put this pink rucksack on my back and take it off of them and carry it. You see, somehow, in some way, as he dies on the cross, Jesus is reaching down and taking up all our sorrows and pain, the curse of Genesis 3, and putting it on his own back. He takes away our curse. 
But not only that, not only does he take away our suffering, secondly, he takes away all of our sin. In just a few verses, verses four to six, we get different words to describe our sin. Verse five, our transgressions or our iniquities. Or verse six, our waywardness. And these words, and there are others actually here as well, cover the worst of us. Not, not, it's everything you could think of in terms of how we have rejected God, failed to love him, failed to love others. And it's not even just the external actions. But, but transgression and iniquity and waywardness, it includes the very darkest parts of our hearts. Our most shameful thoughts, our self-serving motivations, our heartlessness towards others. It even covers those things we perhaps don't even realize are sin. I've been struck by something recently, partly through kind of just self-reflection and partly through things that I've been reading, that we, we have this tendency to think, don't we, I might desire to do something wrong, but as long as I don't act on that desire, it's okay, it's just temptation, it's not sin. You know, I, I wanted to hit that person. Made me so angry. But in the end, I resisted the temptation. I didn't hit them. And then we kind of think, well, I didn't sin in that case. Nothing to repent of. That isn't true. These words used here describe the very desires that we have. The desires of our hearts. Even if we don't act upon them, that is sin as well. We are responsible for those desires. They don't come from nowhere. They come from within. They are ours. And so we stand guilty before God, not just because of the actual sin we do, but because of the disordered desires that we have as well. And as crushing as that might feel as you reflect on it, and if you stop and think for a moment about the number of disordered desires in your heart, it is crushing. But as crushing as it sounds, here is the point of Isaiah. Even that sin... The sin of desires, even those, are taken by Christ. Whatever the darkness is, whatever the evil is, Jesus takes it upon himself. I think a few, I don't know when it was, I always lose track of time, but a while back anyway, I think I mentioned um, Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, a, a novel. It's about the life of a character called Dorian Gray. He's a rich young gentleman living in London. He wants to get as much out of life as he can, as much pleasure as he can get. He doesn't really care who he hurts along the way. And early on, he has this portrait of himself drawn, and it's hung on a wall in his house. And here's the thing. Slowly, he notices the portrait changing. It becomes more and more disfigured, uglier. Dorian himself never changes, but the portrait on the wall reflects his true likeness, if you like. Every evil act he does disfigures the picture. His shame is drawn onto the picture. His guilt is added to the face until it almost looks subhuman. Since Jesus hangs on the cross, my transgressions are drawn onto him. My iniquities are penciled onto his face. My waywardness is sketched onto Jesus. 
Makes you think of Isaiah 52, verse 14 that we read earlier, doesn't it? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form uh, marked beyond any human likeness. My sin that disfigures Jesus etched onto him. Jesus takes all of my sin. And in a sense, this is one of the ways that keeps the old, old story so fresh. Because in my honest moments, my sin is fresh every day. And every day I come afresh to the cross and I confess and I enjoy afresh every day the assurance of forgiveness and being amazed at the wonder of it. Jesus takes away all my sin. And of course, that means not only does Jesus take away my suffering and my sin, but he also takes away all of my judgment. Look at what he has to face. Verse 4, he was punished by God, stricken and afflicted by God instead of us. Verse 5, he was pierced and crushed and punished and wounded instead of us. Do you see, whatever the judgment we should face, Isaiah is saying Jesus has faced it. Whatever the punishment we deserve, he has experienced it for us. Crushed, punished, stricken, afflicted, wounded. One writer talks about Jesus' death like this, and I think this will be on the screen. He's turning his bruised face toward the whole human crowd, past, present, and to come, and accepting everything we throw at him, everything we fear we deserve ourselves. The doors of his heart are wedged open wide, and in rushes the whole vile and rolling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets. Let me take that from you, he is saying. Give that to me instead. I'll carry that. And with that, he carries the judgment as well. It's the most wonderful salvation, isn't it? There is no suffering that he won't take from us, ultimately. There is no sin that he doesn't remove, no judgment that he won't face for us. He takes it all. And it cost him everything. But you know, we haven't quite finished the picture. I said there was perhaps a fourth thing. I just want to mention this. It's that there is more to say. There's one final thing that makes this salvation even more complete, even more perfect. Through his death, he, Jesus, transforms our suffering and our sin and our judgment into something beautiful and, and magical and enchanted. Verse 5. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. It's the positive side of all of this. Through the cross, he turns our judgment and curse into peace and health. The poet Michael Geit put it like this. I wanted to get the picture on there. He is a fantastic looking man. Um, He he wrote it like this. "In, In a daring and beautiful creative reversal, God takes the worst we can do to him. And turns it into the very best he can do for us. That's what is going on. He takes our sin and turns it back to us as peace and health. 
Peace and health are bigger than what we think. It's not just about personal peace and, and personal well-being. It is cosmic. It is creation being restored through Jesus' death. But it's not less than those personal things. The promise and the hope of a body restored fully. The promise and hope of a relationship with God restored fully. Peace and health. See, this salvation is the most perfect, most complete, most wonderful rescue that you could ever imagine. Jesus takes away all our suffering and all our sin and all our judgment, and he transforms the pain of our tormented lives into something of ecstatic beauty, peace and healing and life and hope. As Jesus dies, God takes the worst we can do to him and turns it into the very best he can do for us. Our perfect saviour. Much more briefly and finally, our determined saviour. I was originally going to call this our loving saviour and, and, and both work. It is a love that is revealed in his determination. You see, Jesus, though he was innocent and though he'd done nothing wrong and everything right, was hauled before the Jewish courts and then the Roman courts He was convicted of treason and blasphemy, but he was innocent. Verse 9, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Now, if it was me, I'd be kicking and, and screaming, let me go, I'm innocent, I've done nothing wrong, this is unfair. But interestingly, not Jesus, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. There is no voice of protest from Jesus. No calling down angels from heaven to rescue him. Like a humble and submissive lamb, he willingly goes to the cross for me and for you. See, in the end, it wasn't an act of coercion that killed Jesus It was an act of love. The deepest and purest love, most determined love that you could imagine. Death and and judgment are, are hurtling towards us like a runaway train. And Jesus determinedly steps in the path of it, pushing us out of the way, being hit instead of us. And it's determined love. Let me give you some quick examples. In Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing all that Jerusalem would bring. He set his face towards Jerusalem and walked into the city. I will die for my people. In the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood at the prospect of what he was about to go through, Jesus prays to the Father, not my will, but yours. I will die for my people. In the courtroom of the Jewish and and Roman courts, when false charge after false charge is thrown at him, he says nothing and his silence is an expression of his determination. I will die for my people. I will be crushed. I will be pierced for their transgressions. I will be stricken, smitten and afflicted and despised for my people. 
Sometimes preachers, or, or me included actually, will, will use a kind of a story of a heroic figure who, who in some moment of tragedy gives up their life for others and, and, and compare that to the Lord Jesus. Maybe a, a teacher dying instead of her children when a gunman breaks into school. Or, or a police officer exchanging himself for a hostage and being killed in the place of the hostage. And they are heroes. All to be honoured and imitated Their love is an act of instinct, isn't it? In the moment. The silent saviour, the determined saviour, he knew all along how it was going to end. Can you imagine it? At the age of 12, in his father's house, the temple, he knew then how it was going to end for him. The moment he stepped onto the public stage at age 30, he knew how it was going to finish. He had so many opportunities to flee and turn away and escape, but he never did. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter from the moment he was born. Such love, such determination. I will die for my people. In loving determination, Jesus took all my suffering, all my sin, all my judgment. And he gave me health and peace and righteousness. This is the old, old story, isn't it? And I've got to say at this point, if you're not part of this story, you can be. If you have never experienced this Love and this forgiveness, experience it today. Come to Jesus, confess. And if you are part of this story, then never tire of it. This story will take all of eternity to tell. They're already telling it in heaven. Revelation 5. Worthy are you, the lamb who was slain. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. They're already rejoicing in it. And they will be, and we will be, for all of eternity. Never tire of this story. Tell me the story slowly, the poem goes on, that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Never tire of the old, old story. Moment of quiet, and I'm going to pray.